<clears throat> okay, we ready to go, Reg? All set? All right. How are you doing? Good? Yeah, that's good. All righty. Levels look good. Keep them right there. I'll give you the three S's. I'll give you the countdown. You give me the music. I'll give you, I'll give you a podcast. Hmm. Format is very simple. <laughs> All right. Ready to go? Cool. Put it down in the books there in episode 338. 338. All right. Okay. Here we go. Star, smile, strong. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. Don't forget, listening to the podcast, obviously, a major component of the Elton Jim podcast experience, but almost as important, almost. Not quite, but almost as important is your responsibility to get out there and spread the word. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Oh, I can't express the gratitude I have for those who go out there and spread the word. Oh, warms the veins and aorta of my heart. <laughs> Don't forget, if you like what you hear, you go on WGNRadio.com, you go to the podcast section, and then you hit the prompt for this podcast, and my gosh, oh, you will be inundated with podcasts galore. Not only the most recent, but keep scrolling down and down and down, and you'll just keep finding podcast after podcast after podcast. We've done 337 of these things. So welcome to episode 338. I want to uh, share with you uh, an interesting musical and I guess literary. I don't can't. I can't really tell you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly a performance experience that I recently saw that uh, was, I think, worth is worth talking about. Simply because uh, you might not get a chance to to see it for yourself. It's kind of a limited edition live performance. Hopefully, it will be available to people somehow maybe on a streaming service or on an album i don't know i i, I would assume that it, it, it it's it's too it's too interesting and potentially and 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 too unique i think not to but i would like to share uh the experience because as i like to do uh talk about not only big issues and things that i observe around the world, but also some crazy things that might happen to me or observations I make personally or happen to be in my personal life or things that I do that I'd like to share with you. And this certainly falls into the latter category. Uh, 
um, the lead singer for U2, Bono, Paul Hewison, if you will. Bono Vox was his was the first nickname. And then it was shortened to Bono. And, of course, when he started, everybody thought it was Bono because of Sonny Bono. But it's Bono. His real name is uh, Paul Hewison. He's an Irishman. And um, he has recently uh, published his memoir called Surrender, a big, hefty book, about 550 pages, if uh, you are at all (laughs) uh, familiar with with Bono, you know that um, he likes to talk. That's one reason why I think I like Bono. <laughs> I could only imagine Bono and and uh, and me sitting down to have a conversation. In fact, I should say I I actually did meet Bono and did have a conversation with him early in U2's career, and just before they became major major stars. It was just before the Joshua Tree, uh, or maybe right around the same time, but it wasn't. It, it hadn't really exploded yet. Um, but uh, I'd always been a fan of you two. You two, uh, Bono is about four or five years older than me, so we're, we sort of grew up around the same time and and share the same kind of cultural references and experiences to some extent. He's a little older than me, though. I think five, six, five, maybe five, six years older. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I, 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 but when, when U2 was, was on its rise is right when I was in college as a freshman uh, uh, with, a, with a radio show. And for the most part, uh, the the radio uh, our radio station was was played music and it was an interesting and cool time to be on college radio when I was on college radio in the early to mid eighties because uh, it was right before the explosion of you know the the second British invasion of the eighties and just at the very beginning of MTV when MTV really started to uh, to take hold and have and become a a major musical force and and so uh it was fun because there was this new brand of music that was bubbling out there but it hadn't reached the mainstream yet don't forget and I I've, I've mentioned this in the past um, we take, you know, even now cable television is almost passe with so many streaming services and, and other and other platforms. But in 19, in the early 80s, uh, cable television was just beginning to gain traction as a major competitor to the networks. It was still a very tight and closed entertainment choice world. It was still dominated in the late 70s and early 80s by the networks, still the three major networks. People might even not even uh, realize it, but there was no Fox network until the late 80s. The Simpsons is what really helped uh, 
establish Fox as a the fourth network. There was only three. There was ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that was it. And yes, there was the PBS stations, and there were certainly independent stations all around the country, uh, UHF stations. But the main network still dominated things into the 80s. It, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Now, cable television certainly had an amazing run of 40 years, but right now, right, the, the, the big slogan is cutting the cord. And many people have, and many of, and I know many people that have that, that basically do not get cable anymore, and they get their programming through um, over a mix of over-the-air television using a, a, an antenna, and then subscribing to two or three or four different um, streaming services. So, uh, but the cable television alternative. Uh, really, MTV, and I've talked about this before. You really cannot underestimate the you know, the impact that MTV had in not only changing music and and change and and placing rock music at, at the center of pop culture as it is now. It always wasn't, and I and and I've spoken about that in the past. But but also, it drove the cable television industry. Um, because people like my age, in their late teens or early twenties, and then it 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 siphoned down into teens pretty quickly. Um, wanted their MTV and and wanted cable. We had, I mean, if you were a teenager or in your early twenties, I mean, you had to watch MTV. It, it was driving the culture, and so. Uh, you know, it was a it was a it was a novel and a strange and an odd concept for many uh, parents at the time uh, in that generation to to think about paying for television. Television was had always been free for the most part. There were some pay per view types of, uh, you know. Uh, stations and channels especially in sports that had tried and 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 kind of failed to some extent but for the most part people did not pay for television it was supported by advertising so the idea of paying was kind of a tough sell uh in 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 the early days for your parents They're like you know we really need to start getting cable television and you know why and uh, and it, and living in Chicago, of course, where I was born and raised, uh, cable came to the to, you know started as a rural alternative for rural areas that uh, that that had trouble getting the uh, over the air signal. That's how cable television started. Broadcast broadcast channels were put on the cable because. They were so remote, or there was a lot of trees, and that the that the the over the air signal couldn't get to these areas where some of these people lived, and so the programming that was on network television was put on a cable and put on poles and delivered to the homes directly, and then someone got the smart idea. I don't know what took them so long 
to say, well, we can do more than just send the the over-the-air signal programming. Why don't we create some original programming that's not on the networks? And thus, cable television was born. But MTV was a major driver. And in Chicago, given how, you know, corrupt Chicago government is and when there is whenever there's a new <laughs> there's a new potential revenue stream everybody in Chicago especially 40 or 50 years ago uh, had their hands out so Chicago d- didn't get cable television until the mid 80s probably around 84 or so maybe even 85 I'm trying to think when we got it maybe 84 uh, but certainly by then, MTV had been on for three years um, because there was so many, so much red tape, and everybody, you know, had to get their their palms greased because there was this major thing, and you know, it was there were different cable companies assigned different areas of the uh, of the city in order so there wasn't a monopoly, and there was all this bureaucratic red tape that went on, and so Chicago proper did not get uh, cable television. Uh, for a good two or three years later, which is very frustrating for me because being a, a pop culture guru at the time, I was missing out on MTV. Now, certainly, there were when the, when the growth of MTV and the popularity of it grew, network television did try to um, to compete, but they couldn't compete with 24-hour, <laughs> you know programming but there were things like friday or friday night yeah friday night videos yeah that's what the show was called friday night videos and uh, so the music videos became network uh shows as well to compete with that but they never could compete truly with the impact that mtv had on on the culture and i've talked about this um and and so my original point was that at that same time, that's what was kind of happening with college radio. The, the radio stations at the time were not very quick to, um, ad, ad, to adopt or to play some of this newer music that was being shown on MTV, especially because a lot of, a lot of it was coming from England. And, uh, you know, the, the British invasion had happened in the 60s. And so... Uh, you know, American radio and American music business wasn't really looking to the uh, to the Britons any to the Brits anymore. Uh, it was more of, of American kind of music, and don't forget, it was at that time. It was because it was driven mostly by hard rock, but but at the late seventies and early eighties, it was driven by disco, which certainly had its start to some extent in in Europe in the in the European discotheques if you will but then but then America became uh kind of the mecca for uh for disco in terms of generating the different stars so a lot of the commercial radio stations were not playing a lot of the kind of post punk or new romantic or new wave music that was happening in Britain in the late seventies and early eighties. They they were they were not playing it. In fact, you, it was even hard for you if you were a record if a fan of it to get it. There was a section in the stores called the import section. 
that some cool hip record stores, uh, not your general kind of department store record departments, but your cool hipster. There's a place called Wax Tracks in Chicago and Rolling Stone in uh, on the Northwest Side, which still is open. That uh, and other kind of kind of hip, uh, independent mom and pop uh, kind of. Um, record stores would have their import sections and they would get these these uh albums from England and around the world there where this new you know post punk and uh and new wave music synthesizer based uh, music uh was beginning to be made and um so of course if you were kind of cool and hip and into music that's where you went to because the you know the and especially if you're in a rock music, if you weren't into disco, that's where you were going because commercial radio was still playing, you know, KC and the Sunshine Band. If you listen to, if you, I, I listen on Sirius Radio now. I think I've talked about this a few times. I listen religiously to the, the, the American Top 40 Countdown. They play it on the 70 station on Sirius uh, over the weekend. And they have the original shows with Casey Kasem who made a career out of counting down. <laughs> but um, the ability to count backwards is, was Casey Kasem's great talent. But, uh, um, and it's amazing when you listen to what was on American radio. I mean, this is the, based on the Billboard charts. It was amazing to hear. Now, in retrospect, 35, 40 years later, to hear what was on the leading commercial record or radio stations, while at the same time, these other bands were around and gaining popularity around the world, but they were not really breaking in to the American market. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, U2's first couple albums you know, we're in 1980 and 1981, but no, there was no, you, you didn't hear I Will Follow or, uh, or New Year's Day or anything like that uh, on a commercial station in 1980. Now, there were a few cool hip stations that did play this kind of music. In Chicago, it was WXRT, and, and that's where the cool hip um, music fan went to hear this music that you couldn't hear anywhere else. So there were bands like Roxy Music and uh, at the time and Robert Palmer and Adam and the Ants. And, uh, uh, you know, some of it was, was fly-by-night music. Some of it was, was, was long-standing classic music that turned out to be classic music. But a lot of that music was not getting played on the biggest commercial stations in in the biggest radio markets around the country uh that was still not that was considered you know kind of underground music if you will but that's where mtv made its niche because they were playing this music that people could not see or hear anywhere else too not only could you not see it because there it was radio obviously is an invisible format but uh, that music was just not getting played. Now, that seems crazy in today's world because now we have access to any music from anyone at any time. I, I heard a, a crazy uh, statistic. The singer-songwriter Charlie Puth was recently um, being interviewed, and they were talking about the way the, 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 the music 
business has changed. And, and given the fact now that anybody, I mean, you know, the role of the record label is still around, but the, the record labels in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and even early 2000s, before Napster, they had ultimate control. There were always some independent record companies, always have been. But the advantage of a, for an artist to get on a, on a major label was just the, the sheer marketing power that they had, that they could flood the market with advertising and trade advertising and TV and radio advertising and, and television opportunities and things like that to get the word out about something, where, whereas a smaller independent record company didn't have those funds to blanket the country or the world with promotion and advertising. So that was the advantage. So the the major labels really did run the music business, and it really was Napster. And all of a sudden, people sharing files that that led to the the demise. But I, I, I but Charlie Puth, who is obviously you know right in the the middle of this right now, talking about the differences in the music business, he 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 said that um, that because everyone has access. Now to the internet, and you can just record something and put it on your Facebook page or on your Instagram page, right, or on a YouTube channel, and 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 it's out there, right. That's how songs are released. That's how some of the major artists of today have been discovered, not through the the normal uh, record label system, but through their own YouTube channels and Instagram. Things going viral. And and Charlie Puth was quoted as saying that he heard, and, and I would assume since he's in the business, that this is accurate, that 70,000 songs a day are released on the Internet. Now, I mean, you know, some nobody hears at all, right? I mean, it's not, not saying that, that you're inundated with 70,000 new songs a day that, that come across your computer or your device of choice. But the fact is, around the world, that's how many new songs are out there. 70,000 a day. Among, within, the new, uh, you know, within the old record label system, I mean, come on. There were X amount of new albums that came out every, you know, used to be Tuesday. Now I think it's Friday. But, you know, it wasn't 70,000. They used to create marketing, uh, you know, strategies and programs based around high-profile artists and spread them out over several weeks so they wouldn't compete with each other, so each one could sell their own copies since people had X amount of uh, disposable income. So it was a whole strategy, just you know, similar to the way movies used to be released. And now that whole COVID certainly expediated that. that that's a, they're still trying to figure out the, the, the movie business right now. That's still in a state of flux. They still don't know what to put into a theater or put down a, a streaming service. They don't know what they're doing really right now. They're, they're, they're just kind of, throwing stuff out there and and keeping their fingers crossed it's really kind of funny i mean there's some obvious things that are going to be released to a theater first you know like you know like a top gun maverick and then those you know and all the 
you know, the DC comic and the Marvel kind of films, those are, are made for the theaters, but other kind of movies that fall through the cracks, they, they're still trying to figure out what do we do with a, with a rom-com? What do we do with a drama? You know, uh, they still don't know what to do now since streaming has become so popular and people because of COVID are so used to getting films on demand now in their homes when they want them, whether it's a new film or not. It used to be a 45 or so day uh, window where the the studios in the the theaters had a, uh, had a priority on that, but those are, are slowly uh, going by the wayside, but get back to music. So when I was on college radio, in the early 80s and mid-80s, it was cool, a kind of a cool time. Granted, college radio stations, uh, you'll have small frequencies and wattage, and so their, their, their coverage area is not very far. But they are not run by commercials, right? Uh, they're there as, as kind of a, 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 a learning tool for prospective broadcasters. So they're out there, just they've got their signal, and if you're close enough to the college, and depending on the strength of the signal, it can get a little far into the, into the areas around. Uh, some you know, college radio stations were 100 watts, some were 10. I mean, it depended. I mean, some bigger schools even had bigger than that. There's some college radio stations right now in the Chicago area, like the, the College of DuPage. They, they actually have a very strong signal, and... Uh, they, 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 their ratings actually they're show up on the official ratings book, which is an amazing feat to compete with commercial stations. And in some state, in some areas, in the ratings, the College of DuPage's radio station is defeating fifty thousand watt stations in Chicago, or they're even with them. That's amazing. 50,000 watts? WGN is a 50,000-watt station. There are times when WGN can be heard in about 37 states around the country on the dial because the, the power of the signal goes that far around the country, usually at night. But there are some stations that also have 50,000 watts that are not doing very well, and a college radio station is... At, with the, at the same level of listenership, that's, that's amazing. But that's the freedom of a college radio station. For people that really like music, that's the freedom of a radio station. You have, you have more eclectic um, programming. You're not stuck to a playlist. When I was in college, you know, uh, we were able to play whatever songs we wanted. We, we, we picked the albums. We picked the songs. There wasn't any kind of a playlist. There were maybe some theme shows. There was a people that would do a jazz show or a blues show or a rock show. Uh, my show was 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 kind of a, a little bit of everything, and I had I did do some some talk, but my the segments were were shorter. But I would I would try to be funny and do some little bits and segments, and also play music. Um, but that was it was it was up to you. It was your own creativity. That was the idea of the college radio station is to is to um, is to let each student who might want to be a broadcaster or just maybe doing it for fun use their own creativity and create the program that they, that they would think you know would be interesting not only to them but to an audience. 
And if you were a music fan and you were you know into music like I was and still am, uh, that was the kind of music that you were looking at was the British import music at the time. And you too certainly fell into that category. And so, as I said, uh, you know, you two really started to um, to gain traction uh, in the early '80s with uh, with their first couple of albums, uh, "Boy" and um, and October, and uh, you know, and that was uh, not heard here at all. And it wasn't until 83 or so when then they started to get played on MTV more. And, uh, you know, by 84 or so, they started to really break through, especially with, you know, Pride in the Name of Love. That became the, their big breakout hit. But they were, there was a lot of buzz about you 2 If you were into that kind of underground British import music, uh, there was there was a lot of uh, buzz about you too, and not only their songs, but you know their uh, their albums and their and their live performances, especially, and Bono's performance. Bono uh, has uh, from the from the get go, you know, has been a uh, you know a very charismatic. And ultimate kind of front man for a rock band, and he had the swagger and the confidence and the you know the music with Edge and um, and Larry Mullen Jr. on drums and Adam Clayton. Uh, they really brought you know in in this in, in in this era of of still kind of pop and disco dominating things. That's what made you two stand out uh, at the beginning of their. Uh, at the beginning of their careers because they had this really strong rock and roll sound that was kind of a throwback. It's, it's crazy to think about that now, that that was considered a throwback, a throwback but it was. And so when, uh, when they came into power in the early 80s, you know, uh, you know with October and War, and boy, those were their first three albums in you know in the late eighties, or I mean the early eighties. I mean that was just a, uh, you know, it was kind of like wow, this is really cool. It had an edge, no no pun intended, to it that that sounded unlike anything else. And it really was this big sound, this anthem kind of sound, and it had religious overtones as well. The band being from Ireland. You know, in, in you know where where religion is is such a a, a major part of people's lives, and it's it's also been a major source for for confrontation of the battles between the Irish Catholics and the Irish Protestants. So, a lot of their music um, had religious overtones as well, not preachy overtones, but wider kind of universal themes. But but there were references to you know, biblical passages and Jesus and things like that in their music, which also made them stick out. But there's no question it was their the power of their of their music and their sound and Bono's lyrics, and then 
added to it, they really could put on a hell of a live show. Um, and so thus, uh, the, the buzz started and then MTV, I mean, so much of fame like that is based on timing. And when you were able to see you two perform these songs, uh, especially these early songs, like I said, you know, from Boy and uh, and October and War, uh, when you'd see something like I Will Follow or New Year's Day, uh, there was a great, you could still find it, there's a great performance of U2 early in their career from the Red Rocks um, venue in Colorado. And it's called U2 at, at, at Red Rocks. And if you've never seen that, I would... I would definitely suggest you go online. I'm sure it's on YouTube or, or you can find it somewhere. But that really shows U2 at its um, early uh, kind of raw power where they were coming into their own. Uh, you could see the connection that uh, the band was making to the audience and the audience giving back to the band. It's just, uh, it's a pretty powerful. And, uh, and then there was a, um, a festival called the, uh, the Us Festival on the West Coast in the early 80s that was sponsored by uh, one of the Apple founders, Steve Wozniak, which was kind of a throwback. You know, there, you know now we think of festivals like that's uh, part of the, the musical scene. Once again, <laughs> I know it might be hard for you to, to understand this if you're a younger person because there's you know Lollapalooza and all these other festivals every week during the summer, but that wasn't the case. It, I, I, it's hard for me to explain this to you, but the, the entertainment world was very closed. It wasn't, the whole culture was very closed. It wasn't as open. There weren't as many options that we have today. And I, and you say, geez, how did you get by? Well, we did. It was that's that's what was there, and that's what you did. But mostly, there were concerts by one act, and uh, and it was in the early '80s when Steve Wozniak put together this uh, this kind of Woodstock throwback, which was the beginning of the the festivals, if you will. You know the us festivals, uh, and and so and and but they, what they wanted to do was was give some uh, you know exposure to many of these these uh, these up and coming bands, not just you know name bands of the day, but give this us festival, which had some kind of political overtones to it too, and and, and environmental and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it was it was kind of a it was a very California hippie-ish tone to it. You know, environmental conservation, bring the world together kind of thing. These high aspirations, and so of course they were looking for just like Woodstock did. Uh, you know, cutting edge bands of the moment, either up and comers or ones that were that were just established. And so it was a, a an interesting and wide ranging. Uh, you know, I think, if, I don't know if it was a week long festival. It was, it was, I'm trying to think now how far it was, but, but, but you two played there and made a huge impression and made a huge leap forward in their popularity because once again, uh, they weren't getting a lot of area, uh, radio play on commercial radio in the United States, 
but their live performances were getting a lot of buzz and they were selling records and on some of the more hip radio stations, commercial and college, they were getting some airplay and it was only a matter of time before they would break nationally. And I said in about 83 or 84 is when um, you two really, you know, uh, made the leap. It was, it was pretty much the unforgettable fire. The war album is the one that really broke them in 83. You know, that had uh, New Year's Day on it and Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And, uh, and then after that came the unforgettable fire in 84. And then that had pride in the name of love on it. And that one really broke them. I saw you two in 84 uh, at the, uh, here in Chicago at the UIC Pavilion. Now, I don't even know what it's called anymore. It was at the University of Illinois at Chicago. That used to be called the UIC Pavilion. And that was a smaller venue. I think that probably held, it wasn't as big as, as, as the Chicago Stadium at the time, which held like 20,000 for a concert, or even the Rosemont Horizon, which held about 15,000, which is now the Allstate Arena. I think the 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 UIC pavilion at the time maybe maybe somewhere between eight and ten, um, and I saw them there. And when I walked out of that concert, like I said, the unforgettable fire in '84 started to get. It still wasn't getting a lot of airplay on the radio yet, but it, that's when '84 is when it when really the commercial radio stations started to embrace what was being played on MTV. And certainly by then, U2 now was an MTV favorite. Um, but it wasn't getting played a lot until the uh, before that. The Unforgettable Fire was kind of the one that broke them on commercial radio stations. And I saw that tour very early on. And when I saw, once again, the connection between the band and especially Bono, who's again a very charismatic frontman and made to be a performer for an arena. I mean, you know, the the music with these big riffs and the anthems kind of chants and shouts in the choruses. And, you know, I, I remember he he literally went off the stage and went into the crowd. You know, I think he was even climbing into the seats. It was, it was, it was crazy, and the people were just going nuts for him. And he was, you know, in his early twenties, and by that time, and you know, mid twenties, and so at the at the height of his powers, and you could just feel that this was these guys were something. These were gonna, this was gonna be a big band. This was this this could not be contained because the the just the the the, the electricity in in the in the in the arena. And you could just feel the 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 um, the crowd was was it was like bringing a Springsteen concert once again, where I'm talking about where there's such a connection and a sense of community. These fans were rabid fans, and and you two fans still are like that for the most part, at least the early ones. But I could just tell. I remember when I went to um, to the concert with a friend of mine at the time, and and I said, okay, these guys are going to be huge. This is not just a cult band anymore. These guys are going to be mainstream band. They are going to be huge. And sure enough, uh, while Pride uh, certainly pushed them uh, into the mainstream, 
then uh, in 87, uh, when the Joshua Tree came out, that just changed the whole game for them. But really, it was their live performances again. I saw them live in 84, and then they also appeared once again because they're one of the up-and-coming bands of the time, especially coming out of the, the United Kingdom. Um, they were, and they were socially conscious, as I was talking to you about. They've always been playing at these, you know, they played at the Us Festival. Their music was was also about, you know, bigger universal themes and, and peace and love and things like that. And so, um, you know, they played at Live Aid, and that was another. That thing was was beamed around the world, and once again, the U2 fans showed up with the white, with you know, because that was kind of their, you know, uh, in their early days. If you watch that Red Rocks thing too, the big things was to have these white surrender flags, which I think is why he even calls his um, his autobiography Bono's autobiography, which I'm initially talking about here. It's called Surrender, but people used to have the, these white flags that they would, you know, because the band had that. And then the people would have that in the audience. And if you ever go back, and I'm sure you can go online, you know, once again on YouTube or something, and see U2's performance at Wembley during Live Aid, uh, that whole, that it almost looked like it was a U2 concert. I mean, they were, they were the, the cool band of the moment, especially in the UK. Now, I had seen U2 um, just before that. I'm pretty sure it was just before that, right? Uh, there was another uh, kind of um, of a a tour with multi bands, not festivals so much because they were indoor. Uh, but in the in the mid '80s, uh, that it was around Amnesty International, which talked about political prisoners and. Uh, the first one of the first ones that they had uh, was in I think it was eighty five or eighty six. I have to take a look now and find out which one it was. But um, or was it eighty four? No, I'm pretty sure it was eighty five. And uh, and this was a huge. They had they had some major players at the day. Including uh, you know the police and uh, and Lou Reed at the time and Brian Adams and uh, and Peter Gabriel who was huge at the time and so they had you two on the bill as well and I went to see their concert here in chicago they went to the major uh cities around the uh, you know around the country to talk about amnesty international and the fight for you know political prisoners and it was really headed up by at the time by sting and peter gabriel um but u2 was there and they were once again just kind of beginning their ascent and later, uh, there was another, I think that was, I think it was 86 now that I think about it. Yeah, it was 86. Uh, but, but it was before the Joshua Tree. You know, it was after Live Aid. 
which was 85, but it was before the Joshua tree in, in 87. And it was, uh, I think it was called the conspiracy of hope. If I remember now. Yeah, I think that's what it was called. And it was, uh, you know, sting and Brian Adams and Peter Gabriel and Lou Reed. And I think Joan Baez was a part of it. And so they came to Chicago in the summer of 86 and they had a press conference at O'Hare, which was very cool, in this one little area in O'Hare. And so I was writing a, a music column at the time, and so I got an invitation to the uh, to the press conference. And I mean, you know, I was what twenty two years old at the time, and I mean, my gosh, the, I was in this. I was within five feet sitting at this press conference of, you know. Sting and Peter Gabriel and, uh, uh, you know, and you too. And, uh, uh, Lou Reed. I was just like, I was blown away. You know, I asked him a couple of questions and after the press conference was done, they were just kind of hanging around. And so at the time, you know, the police, cause there was going to be reunion at this, at the Chicago show, there was going to be a reunion of the police on this tour. They had broken up but they were reuniting for this. So of course everybody was going by sting and, and everybody was Peter Gabriel because that was, you know, he was big at the time with his. So album and everything. And there was Bono just kind of hanging by himself because you two, once again, was, was kind of known, but not really. They weren't getting a lot of, you know, of radio play and now it was two years later. They, 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 the unforgettable fire was eighty four. Joshua Tree didn't happen until you know eighty eighty seven. So there's Bono just kind of hanging. So I walked up to him and and started talking to him and asking him questions. And I talked to him for about fifteen minutes by myself. There was no one else around us. It was awesome. And I've got his autograph on my on my. Uh, on the on the uh, on the folder that I had that they gave out at the press event, and uh, it was really one of the coolest things that I I still think about that with it was it was it was just to see those that, that those people at their at their prime powers right and Peter Gabriel Lou Reed had a, a renaissance at the time I was a huge and still am a huge huge Lou Reed fan. So to see, you know, you two and and Sting and Brian Adams and Peter Gabriel and Lou Reed and the Neville brothers and I think it was Joan Baez too. I mean, this was just crazy and this was this major, you know, these kind of benefit concerts now were becoming after the popularity of Live Aid, now a lot more were were happening. But I really you do have to really credit as I said before that Us Festival that happened in the early 80s with Steve Wozniak of Apple. But anyway, so that's when U2 really then took off. So I was, I've always been a, a U2 fan, and I had some you know, kind of personal uh, experiences, not only having seen them early in their career, but then having a chance to actually talk to Bono. I remember one of my main questions, though, because what, at the time Bono was in concert was they would, he would oftentimes, and still does, in the middle of their own songs, they kind of venture off and he'll sing some songs since we're kind of around the same age. I said, he's a few years younger, older than me, 
But they would also, Bono would sometimes sing little passages of other songs within little kind of detours or jams within their songs. And in the mid-80s, it was not the most popular thing at the time, but Bono would start to sing Candle in the Wind, an Elton John song. Now, that would seem, for, for the time, that would seem pretty crazy just because, you know, Elton was so big in the 70s. And while he had a, a good career renaissance in the 80s, you wouldn't think that you too would be into Elton John. But once again, Elton John was so huge in the 70s when Bono was growing up. Even, even though he grew up and was inspired by the Ramones and punk rock, you couldn't help but hearing Elton John music. It was just, it, was, it permeated everything for a good three or four years from 72 to 76 you know radio around the world was dominated by elton john music whether you want to know that or believe it or not but it was so just through osmosis even though you know u2 wasn't uh you know inspired or their music didn't sound like elton john music you couldn't help but know elton john music and so being an Elton fan, it was so cool to hear someone like you too, this cutting edge band, acknowledging Elton John's music within their concert. So that was one of the questions I had. I said, you know, I said, so why do you play Candle in the Wind? And he just looked at me and he said, because Elton writes great music. And I was just like, that was so cool at the time because he wasn't being he wasn't trying to be cool. He was just telling it like it is. Hey, that's a great song and he's a great songwriter and and so that's why. He wasn't copping an attitude or or trying to be too cool for the room. Oh, I don't listen to Elton John. I just listen to, you know, cutting edge punk music or, or you know what I and so at the time, you know, Elton could be viewed as a mainstream adult contemporary star and here was one of the leading rock stars, up-and-coming rock stars of the day, name-checking and playing some songs that you wouldn't expect. It would be like as if Elton John at the time was playing Frank Sinatra music. It would seem they wouldn't be into that or certainly even want, want to be associated with it, but here he was. And after he said that, I had a, a whole different view and respect for him because I, I realized that this was not just somebody looking to um to capitalize this guy really loved music and that's why i've always been you know a fan i'm not a rabid fan of of youtube but certainly have been uh for a long time i haven't seen them in concert for quite a while though but uh so when this book was coming out his new book bono's book called surrender about his life, uh, I've seen Bono uh, give speeches at different events. I've, I've, I've attended two or three Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremonies back when it was really cool. You know, it was in a ballroom in New York at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. There, you know, it wasn't like now it's in these giant arenas with 20,000 people. This was like in a ballroom at a hotel. And while it was a big ballroom, it was still pretty small and intimate. And I've seen him induct several people, and uh, you know he gives a great speech. I think he inducted Bruce Springsteen, and he, and that's on YouTube. I'm sure you should go back and look at that. So I was interested to maybe pick up 
Bono's book because while he can be, you know, and, and, and he admits it you know, in a self-deprecating way, but he admits it. He admits that he's a huge narcissist. He admits that he's that he's uh that he loves attention that he's a that he uh you know is uh is a control freak he 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 readily agrees with all that that he's over the top and everything else and and bono is is very popular but he's also a polarizing figure in many ways some people think he's just too much too full of himself and and, and almost has a god complex you know and i see that but i also appreciate his raw talent and his ability to connect with people and i have been a part of that and um so i thought this would be interesting so then when i saw that he was going to actually appear uh in a book tour that was not just going into you know bookstores and signing books but instead going to give a concert about his book to promote his book with just him I thought, well, now that's a pretty cool format to see him in. I mean, there's not many times you get a chance to see a performer of Bono's level, especially at this point, in such an intimate place like the Chicago Theater, which holds maybe two or 3,000 people. So that, A, was, a, was an interesting uh, you know, proposition. And then uh, I, I, I figured that this would have to have the same kind of structure that the recent Bruce Springsteen on Broadway show had. And I've talked about that, and you can find that on Netflix as well. Um, it won a Tony Award, but Bruce Springsteen wrote his autobiography uh, about five or six years ago and then built this Broadway show around that by telling some stories from his book and then playing the songs that related to those stories or giving you a background into how he wrote certain stories. Just a one-man show with just Bruce and his, you know, his electric guitar, his acoustic guitar, and a piano. It was a very riveting, uh, very dramatic, very poignant uh, show. I saw, them, I saw two of them. Uh, no, did I see? No, I saw three of them. I'm sorry. I saw three of them over the years. He did it for about uh, two or three years. And, uh, and so this sounded like it. And so once again, with Bono being a great storyteller uh, and being able to, to captivate an audience just by speaking and telling stories and, and his great use of, uh, of imagery, uh, I thought, well, this will be kind of cool to see. This is not something you see all the time. I do hope that they they somehow um, release it for wider distribution because I think uh, you should see it, and you too, fans, should see it, and everybody should see it. It was very poignant. He talked. Now, his, Bruce's was more of a concert. Don't forget, Bono's is more of a book promotion. So, Bruce has certainly told the stories, but he wasn't there to sell the book anymore. He was there as a kind of a of a of a one man show uh, concert. Whereas this, in in its reality, while it had some of the same aspects as that Springsteen on Broadway show, this was here to sell the book. The book just came out, so this was more heavy on the stories and the songs that he played referring to the different anecdotes that he told from the book 
were mostly snippets. He didn't really play a lot of full songs because most of the two-hour show was based upon him telling the stories. And he's, as I said before, he's, you know, he's a, one of the great front men of all time. So he knows how to hold an audience, and he certainly knows how to hold an audience. And this audience at the Chicago Theater uh, last week was, uh, a couple weeks ago, was, was they were just in rapture. I mean, they were, these were the rabid U2 fans, and I mean, these were his disciples. So he had them the minute he walked out. But he didn't, he just didn't, you know, walk out. He really, he just didn't, it wasn't a blow off. He was really into this show, and he fed off the energy of the crowd. And vice versa, um, and in these stories, you can tell were were very emotional and dramatic and poignant for him to share. And uh, you know, he he touched on his home life when he grew up, and the band being formed, and um, his relationship with his father, and um, and his and the fame of you two. And his uh, his marriage, his more than forty year marriage, to his wife Allie. So he he was very honest, very genuine, very committed. Yes, sometimes over the top, some sometimes a little over dramatic, as Bono will be. But that's part of his charm. And as I said before, he he embraces it. He doesn't pretend like he's not. A narcissist that he's not a show off he certainly knows he is and revels in it and has fun with it but uh, you know he, he talked about his love for the ramones and that was kind of the spark that got them started in 1977 and they go through some of their early he goes through the how the band formed itself and then later on you know how they get along now and at different points in the band's um, you know history, and as as they rose to fame, and then they became superstars. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, you know, capsule of his life. There are some stories that I did not know. I don't know if you remember this, if you're a U two fan, or but there was several years ago, about five or six years ago, there were these stories floating around that that Bono was was seriously ill, that he that and there was some illness around him that was almost fatal, but. Uh, he made reference to it uh, in, in their music, but he never would talk about it specifically. And I haven't read the book yet because I just got it. But based on what he said in the show here, he starts the show off with this, confronting this, which was nice, and 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 finally revealing that he had a that he had a heart defect when he was born, and five or six years ago it got almost fatal, and he had uh, an eight hour open heart surgery to correct this this heart defect but it sounds like as if it was very serious and could have been fatal if it wasn't taken care of so that was interesting news to get um i don't know if i knew it or not but the way he tells it it's it's heart-wrenching that uh, his mother iris passed away when he was just 14 years old and the last time he saw his mother alive, now get this, how's this to carry around? The last time he saw his mother alive was at his mother's father's funeral. So at his grandfather's funeral on his mother's side, at the funeral, 
his mother collapsed at her father's funeral. She was taken away to the hospital, and he was younger at the time, and they didn't let the kids in at the time, and blah, 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 and she passed away. So the last time he saw her was seeing her collapse at her own father's funeral, and then she passed away. And he talked about the way he and his father and his brother, who were now left without a female influence, uh, how they dealt with her her death, and it was it was not in a very healthy way. They they almost. They never mentioned her name again. They didn't talk about her. They didn't really know how to handle the grief. And he talks about the distant um, relationship he had with his father, very similar to Bruce Springsteen's story in the distant. It seems like there's a recurring, and that's Elton John's distant. It seems the most rock stars have a very distant relationship with their father, and there really is this this built-in ambition and drive to either win their father's love or show their fathers that they were wrong about them. Um, Bruce Springsteen was recently on an interview with with, uh, Howard Stern, and he was saying how if you want to raise a rock star, uh, you can either, if you're a parent, you either tell them that they're the greatest thing on earth or they're worthless. (laughs) And that's the way, and growing up with that, coming from one parent and coming from another, uh, that's what goes into your mind and drives you. And Bono almost had the same exact thing. He said, if you want to raise an arena rock star, uh, there's a couple of ways to do it. You either tell them that the world needs to hear their voice, which is the Italian way to do it, or there's... Tell them that they are worthless, and that's the Irish way of doing it. And he said, and I had the latter. <laughs> um, so very poignant, very, very honest, uh, talking about uh, uh, his marriage to his wife and, and the, the, the important role that she has played in his life um, because he did not have a, a female figure in his, for most of his growing up from when he was 14. And they married when they were 21. Um, and so you really get a, 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 an interesting little background into the band itself. And he's talking about how his father, his relationship with his father continued and it, it always remained frosty. Um, and, and then sadly when he just felt like they were beginning to melt some of the emotional frost between them in 1999 or so, then his father told him that he had cancer. And he died two years later, and he felt like just when finally they were beginning to maybe make some head roads, then his father was gone. And uh, and it was and, and he was kind of <laughs> he was uh, imitating his father and, and imitating these these chats that they would frequently have um, at a pub in London called, or in in Ireland called the Sorrento Lounge. And it was just him and his father, and they would, and his father would start every conversation with, "So anything strange or startling?" <laughs> and in the midst, you know, Bono would tell him, "Well, you know, uh, Luciano Pavarotti called me, and he wants me to write him a song." <laughs> How's that for a? Uh... And still, his father wasn't all that impressed. Amazingly, 
So very interesting to hear uh, him tell these stories in a in a a very serious, but also a kind of a funny, you know, making jokes about it. But you could see that there's real pain there, and you could see that he's still working through it. Uh, but you do get a little background into what drove him, some insights into what he was going through as the music and his fame began, and talking about his life now, his 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 health problems and where he is today. And uh, all wrapped up in two hours, and it was uh, it was really worth it, and it was interesting. And so, I hopefully this stories of surrender of what of which this was called. Uh, hopefully, that will will be available somewhere. But I wanted to share that with you because I thought it was uh, a really uh, cool performance, rock music, bonding live experience that um you know if you get a chance if it does ever become commercially available i would want you to check it out another thing that i want to tell you about with this concert this was a device free show okay so that means no smartphones no cell phones no recording device no cameras no anything to the point where there are some shows now, a lot of times comedians will do this, and some bands do this too, where you actually have to give them your phone. At least that's the way they were doing it, because everybody can just click on their phone and record things. And if they do want to release this commercially, I mean, this would be on the Internet, right? This would be on YouTube tomorrow. So it was a very complicated system to get into the theater, because you have to basically surrender your phone. And they put it in a, a locked pouch, which they give you. And then you carry that with you. But then at the end of the show, you got to go out to the lobby. And then they have the device to unlock it. But also, it takes time. Not only because you have to go through the metal detectors. But then even outside of the Chicago Theater... Because you're going to give them your phone, right, outside. Before you get in to the actual theater, you're going to get in where you show them your, your mobile ticket, right? That's what you, there's, there's no paper tickets anymore. So you show them, and they, they buzz you in with that. But then right after they do that, you go and you put your phone in this locked pouch, and then you go through the metal detectors. So because... In today's world, your cell phone is your ticket. That's got your ticket, you know, your location, your seat number, and your section, and your row. Before you get in, there's another station that you have to go to, and you show them your your ticket on your phone, and then they give you this little post-it note that they have to physically write down so that takes time right they have to write down your 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 section and your row and your seat number because that's your ticket you don't have a hard copy ticket right so if once they lock your phone in this pouch you don't have access to your phone which means you don't have access to your ticket which means you won't remember where your seat was and most people don't know where their seat is even when they have the ticket in their hand so you, can you imagine that you're going to ask people to memorize their seat location? 
I mean, they, there's people in wrong seats when they have the ticket right when they're looking at it. And you go, okay, you're in row M on your ticket, and this is row E. This is not your row. Why are you sitting here? So could you imagine? So it's a complex system. First, they write it down. So there's a line to get to that station. And they had several tables outside of the Chicago Theater, though. I mean, I don't know if there's a better way to do it or not. It may sound good on paper, but when 3,000 people are waiting to get in, uh, I'm not sure how proficient this system is. But So they give you this thing because this is what you have to use as your seat location. You know, you don't have your ticket because you don't have a paper ticket. We hate paper, but then they give you a piece of paper. <laughs> right? I mean, go figure that out. I love that. You know, oh, we, we, we we're not going to give every, no more paper tickets. That's, 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 that's the past. And then they give you a piece of paper with your seat location on it, which is basically like a paper ticket. So just give me the paper ticket. <gasps> Plus, I like having the paper tickets. I save the ticket stubs. Now I have to print something off and put it in my, my shoe box. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. They still don't know what to do with this. Everybody wants to be paperless, and yet they use paper, whatever. But anyway, my point is it made getting into the theater a a big ordeal and a time-consuming ordeal, so much so that the line to get in, and I'm not even exaggerating, was literally around the block and down to the next block. The Chicago Theater is on Lake Street and State Street on the corner. And I was in line on Lake Street and Dearborn. That is a complete city block away. Well, no, I wasn't Dearborn, was it? No, that wasn't Dearborn. That was Clark, I think. Yeah. Whichever it was, I think it was Clark. You know, I mean... It took me 38 minutes from when I got in line down around the block on Lake Street, 38 minutes from when I got in line to when I sat in my seat. And thankfully, while the show was supposed to start at 8, it didn't start till 8.30. It couldn't because there was a one line on that side and then one line going the other way down state street like whatever that street i don't even know if that's adams whatever that is but they went on the i went down the other block on the other side so a little confusion obviously they didn't want any recording so i would assume this is going to be recorded but i still don't think they figured this out yet because this was really not a, a very efficient system uh all of the of the little uh stations they had all made sense but once again as i said so many times this stuff looks good on paper until the human element gets involved people don't stay in lines people don't know where they're going people are so oblivious to everything around them it's really scary so yeah on paper this looks like a very efficient system when in reality it was pretty chaotic and it took almost 40 minutes to get in and thankfully they started the show later they must have held the show just because they had to because there would have been nobody in the theater <laughs> more more people when i got in at 805 and i got there at 7 30 or so when i got in there at almost 10 after 8 and sat down uh it wasn't empty but it wasn't full yet and that was a sold out show so 
keep that in mind too. If you're going to any of these shows that, you, and you might read that they are device free and they had signs everywhere, this is a, a device free show. Then know that you need to, to leave a little earlier because there's going to be a. If you don't want to get stuck in a 45 minute line, get there early and you know what, just sit in your seat because it, it's better off be sitting in your seat inside waiting than standing outside and. You know, if I would have got an hour earlier, I could have probably walked right in and had no problem. I would have been waiting for an hour and a half for the show to start, but it would it would have better than sitting outside in the line for for forty five minutes. So, just a a little concert going tip for you as well. But um, and then on top of it all, say I forgot about this. So okay, first you get this little paper tick, this little post that know what your seat location. Then you go and they and they they scan your ticket. Then you go to the next station and they take your cell phone and you have to either put it on vibrate or put the volume down and they put it in this little pouch and they lock it. Then you go through the metal detector. I mean, right now four different points of stations here then as a as a nice little added attraction with the price of the ticket you also got a copy of the book of bono's book which this whole show was about right so that was nice and it's also a really good way to sell books because you know this tour is going to sell he's taking this 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 little this little um book tour throughout the united states and and europe for about uh, about a month and a half or so so you know he's going to you know for every ticket you get you sell a book. So that's going to count toward the sales of the book. So I'm sure the book is going to you know sell pretty well and be on the New York Times bestseller list, which is also, you know, which is a nice little feather in every author's cap. But so then I have to go through these four stations. I get the post-it note, I get scanned in like my my phone ticket. Then I give my phone away. Then I go through the the metal detector. Then they're handing out books. So in the lobby, the lobby was chaos, and the lobby at the Chicago Theater is not very big to begin with. It's an old theater. And so now people are getting there. You've got, and then so in the lobby, you've got three things happening. You've got the line for the merchandise, which is always crazy, right? Because, of course, everybody wants their merchandise, their cool T-shirt or mug or tote bag. So there's the this, 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 this sprawling little line that's that's curving around everywhere into the lobby you've got a bar where people are buying drinks and you've got a bunch of tables with people handing out books <laughs> oh i it, when i finally got in my seat i was just a relief to get in there you were just bombarded with all this stuff it was uh, it was quite a night but once again it certainly was quite a night because at the end of the day bono uh, put on a uh, a very poignant dramatic and compelling and captivating uh, couple of hours with uh with an artist who was not afraid to be uh naked and bare and honest and funny and serious and uh and moving and so there were more than a few moments where you could hear a pin drop as he was telling these stories and and um and you could hear people sniffling and crying so uh, a very emotional but also very uh, triumphant and celebratory 2 hours uh put on by someone who really has the ability to tell a story and still 
in his early to mid-60s, still has the ability to sell and sing a song. So if you have a chance to read Bono's book, if the stories he told in person are any indication, it sounds like it's a very interesting, well-written, and entertaining, and engrossing book, which I'm going to start to read soon. And if this ever does become um, some kind of a special or a program that will be on a streaming service or in a movie theater or wherever, I would suggest that you check it out. Bono's Stories of Surrender and Bono's book, Surrender. Um, Cool stuff. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 338. I'm Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. From the end of the web to your screen.